This is News Talk on the VOCM Bigland FM radio network. The views and opinions on this program are not necessarily those of this station. And now your News Talk host, Linda Swain. Well, good afternoon, everyone. Uh, Six weeks into the battle royale between the Association of Seafood Producers and the FFAW, and uh, things are no clearer, (laughs) from what I understand, than they have been over the last little while. The FFAW sent out a news news release, sorry, earlier today, calling for a complete overhaul of the province's processing industry, starting with the immediate um, uh, change to allow outside buyers for all species in Newfoundland and Labrador and they were waiting on word from the premier they gave him till three o'clock this afternoon to give them a response to that and then they held a news conference and uh, that's just concluded VOCM's Brian Callahan was there Brian what can you tell us about uh, the news conference and what's happening next well, uh, as uh, Mr. Party, the FFAW president, has uh, said before, quoted, uh, stay tuned. So we don't know what's next, but we know what's now. And, and But the bottom line is they, uh, this morning, latest uh, chapter in this, as you said, Linda, six weeks or going on seven, um, the government, they uh, put out a you know, proposal to the government today. Uh, this morning, basically, based on, you know, and they had met with the premier. They gave him kudos. The premier met with them at a, at a hotel yesterday, uh, in, you know, to get directly involved in this to see what he could do. But uh, they made an offer this morning. They said, look, we'll go. We'll go fishing. We'll go fishing for 220 a pound, the price that was set by the panel. Except you got to start allowing outside buyers in. So we've heard this in the news. We've heard it before, the outside buyer issue. It's not a new issue. And I mean, I've been coming to fishery for more than 20 years. So outside buyers has always been a thorny thing. Um, the issue here, though, is, and Mr. Purdy had to admit this, this is the thing. So, you know, they'll, they'll um, go fishing as long as the province, uh, you know, agrees in the outside buyers piece. But, and I hate using the word piece. I shouldn't have said that. But anyway, um, the problem with that is twofold. One is that there's no guarantee they'll get a higher price. First of all, uh, you know, I mean, in the Maritimes, they're only looking at 225 or 230. There's only an extra five cents. And there are all kinds of reasons for that. There seems to be an issue whereby harvesters are, are helped with the or the producers pay a certain fee on the in the mainland that they don't pay here. Stay tuned on that. I'm still trying to get more information on it. But that was the ultimate, that was the plan they made today. And the premier's office didn't say no. Uh, they didn't say no to it. What they did say is it's not generally done. Uh, here are the reasons why. It's meant to protect the price and uh, producers uh, and fisher harvesters and plant workers and local communities here. Ironically enough, because we know while the fishery is stalled, none of them are, are profiting or doing any good. So the idea is that uh, the government just stated generally that we don't normally do it because it affects local communities, local companies, local buyers, everything. Um, but they didn't say no. What they said was, you only asked us this morning. So, you know, we can't possibly turn around a huge decision like that in a day. So you're going to have to give us more time. And then what the FFAW would say, well, you know, that's been studied to death. I mean, outside buyers is not a new issue. Plus, the, uh, the larger issue is not just this year now either, Linda. I mean, they're making the point. I mean, let's face it, for some, the issue, the, the season's almost lost. But 
Um, the other problem right now is that uh, it's the larger issue of the formula, which they say doesn't work, and the government knows it. He says the FFAW has been told the government knows the current formula doesn't work either. So, you know, they've been kicking this around, and now in the letter today from the government in response to the FFAW, they're talking about, you know, more in-depth consultation on such issues uh, as outside buyers. But, you know, obviously the union wants to get into the deeper discussion of the formula as well. Well, it's interesting you mentioned that because uh, if the price that's uh, being fetched for uh, crab is two twenty here and it's two twenty five in Nova Scotia, we'll say, how is that a formula issue? Is it not more based on the markets? Well, it is the markets, but the markets work around the formula. I mean, you have to have something that shares out the profits or the losses in some cases. So either way, they have to have a formula that works for everybody. That's why the panel was set up too, because. Otherwise, you have a unilateral. They have to have some mechanism by which to set a price. But uh, you know, it begs the question: This is not a new issue. And the true, the, the bottom line is, if you really want to put it in the dollars and cents, there is twelve million dollars right now separating um, uh, fishermen from crab right now, and crab from process from plants and plants from processors. So, I mean, uh, twelve million dollars last year it was almost a nine hundred million dollar, almost a billion dollar industry last season. Not year, but just the season, uh, you know, which begs question what happened to all the profits. I mean, how can fishermen go bankrupt one year later if they raked it in last year? But that's another issue, another day. Um, that's just finances, right? If, I mean, in a cyclical industry, and we know the fishery is cyclical at best, and sometimes it doesn't come back at all, as we saw with the moratorium. But, um, you know, in that kind of industry, you're, you're bound for uh, ups and downs, right? Uh, ebbs and flows valleys and, pe- and and peaks and the truth is you know last year they raked it in and they openly say that uh, so um, they're saying this year it's just 12 million dollars out of a fishery that was 900 billion million last year there's only 12 million dollars right now separating them from a, a deal that's the difference between what the processors and the harvesters are fighting over now price-wise the price that ultimately the harvesters want and the price that ultimately the producers are willing to give so um, if a harvester uh, chooses not to go out, and many have uh, done so and are good with that decision, if you know what I mean, to, to, to get to, a, to the end that they're looking for, uh, other harvesters are having some difficulty and, and feel as though they have to go out. They have no choice or they're going to lose their enterprise. But the ones really caught in limbo here are the plant workers and all the other workers who work around plants, um, you know, truck drivers, uh, forklift operators, and the like, um, who are left in limbo here. So what does this stand essentially mean for them? Was that addressed today? Everybody recognizes the loss on it, but, you know, uh, really, in in some ways, the harvesters hold those reins, and they have to have something because, the the way they put it, the the processors are are holding everything over their heads, right? They call it everything under the world Cartels being used before, but today there were stronger words. I mean, the rhetoric is being ramped up again. So, uh, and we were they're also at. So yeah, I mean, the spinoff will always be effective, but uh, you know, so they got to deal with the primary issue, which is getting the crap. And so until they come to some agreement that makes it worthwhile, and we know from day one they said they can't make a go at two twenty. So nothing will change on that front right now, unless the price goes up. So they're still in, theoretically, that issue. And the other point is, too, you know, you asked, I asked, um, we asked the screen today, you know, like uh, reports of, as you may just mentioned, harvesters going fishing. Um, they say they have no evidence. Uh, they say, yeah, people have gone fishing, but they have no evidence that anyone has landed crab 
And so there was a bit of silence, and I said, well, why not? And, uh, and he said, you'll have to ask them. So, you know. Uh, so what's happening to that crab? I, obviously, they're selling it somewhere else. Is that what well, you can imply from that? Well, this is the thing. It just—it was a strange back and forth of question and answer. It was like, okay, there, we know there, there are people. He admitted there were people gone out, but in the same breath, he said no crab has been landed. And so I just said to him, well, why are they going out? And he said, you'll have to ask them. That's as far as we could get with that. <laughs> so, you know, um, there's gamesmanship, there's strategy, there's um, not a lot of sportsmanship right now. But, you know, I mean, the pre- they, again, they uh, credit the Premier with going uh, in there yesterday. Uh, but it doesn't look like it got them anywhere. I'm again, just to be clear, they haven't. The, pr- the province hasn't said no to outside buyers. They said no for now. Um, but uh, they weren't specific about how long or when these consultations would start. So it was a, it was a brief letter, basically forwarded by the premier's office from the fisheries minister. And, and um, whatever decision now, well, no, ostensibly, is going to have uh, long-ranging impacts. Well, this is it, and, you know, it looks like now that the FAW is willing to die on that hill. They're, you know, like, now they're turning to their attention in some ways to the bigger picture, which might be, uh, you know, foreshadowing. I don't know, but, uh, you know, there was a lot of talk just then about uh, next steps and, and, the, and the formula and the bigger picture. Like, the bigger issue here is this has to be fixed because it's not going to change next year, which is great to hear, especially for us journalists, because we have to deal with this <laughs> every year too, right? Um, you know the the back and forth and the the wink and the nod and the and the information you know they're not getting you because they have to strategize you know for their members on behalf of their harvesters in negotiation with the processors and so you know there's a lot that goes on behind the scenes which always makes it hard to cover Linda but you know you have to take them at their word at all news conferences and uh, right now as far as what you asked right off the top was what's next again it's a stay tuned thing but I don't know what that means. And in the meantime, uh, fish plant workers still without work, some of them without EI, uh, awaiting uh, some kind of resolution or uh, uh, an indication of whether or not their EI will be extended. Uh, so a- any of that addressed? Yeah, good point. Uh, yeah, thanks for mentioning. Um, uh, there's, I think, about, uh, Ms. Freddie said today, about 250 people now who are uh, at least on or going on or have to or about to go on EI. So 250 was the number he gave, roughly. I think he said maybe a little more than that. Uh, it's hard to know. I mean, you know, from day to day, that number probably changes. Um, but there's about 250 now already filed and already on. Um, and that's all I know about that. Uh, basically, that's a process that has to go on parallel because just the, of the uncertainty, right? It's interesting, too. You know, a lot of metaphors, a lot of rhetoric today. You know, it's pretty called it like, you know, the he had the, about a half dozen of the, you know, the most... Uh, the, the, the big heavy, heavy hitters, if you want, in the crab industry, the, the harvesters who own the enterprises, they were around the table today. And, uh, you know, he was just pointing out that, you know, these are like, uh, I'm sitting around with hockey players who can't be traded. And that's in reference to, you know, not being able, like the, the, the processors can trade a light or um, transfer license, but, you know, what are the harvesters? What can they do? Their hands are tied. So they're like the players who can't be traded while the team goes off and trades licenses. So, you know, a lot of metaphors, but that hockey reference was kind of interesting today. Brian Callahan, uh, as you say, stay tuned and we'll keep people informed as this continues to evolve. I really appreciate your time. You're welcome. Anytime, Linda.
Thank you. Uh, your thoughts on that? You're certainly welcome to give us a call. Well, uh, another big issue that has been um, circulating in the news as of late is this whole question of backyard farming and uh, livestock kept on uh, residential properties and the like in municipalities across Newfoundland and Labrador, sparked recently by a uh, removal order that went out to a number of properties in Summerford. Well, we're going to hear from uh, one of the people who received one of those removal orders when we come back right after this. This is News Talk on VOCM. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. We're back and we have a moose on the loose. Claudette. We do. So we had a message to us from Lisa who says uh, she's sighted a cow moose coming 10 minutes past Gander and heading to Quarterbrook. Um, right side of the highway. It was looking at the passing traffic on the left, she says. So she was quite very engaged. Detailed. Very detailed. Very <laughs> detailed and uh, quite the fast moose as well. Well, uh, <laughs> if you are traveling between Grand Falls, Windsor and Gander, by the sounds mm-hmm. of it, uh, and uh, uh, keep an eye to both sides of the road because there's a moose on the your way. <laughs> uh, and uh, this is the time of year, of course. This is when they start to drive off last year's calves. So we're going to see an abundance of them in the next little while. Well, concerns have been raised about municipal regulations surrounding livestock and backyard farming after the town of Summerford issued a removal order against a number of residents who keep animals. Frank Brown is one of them. He joins me now. Well, hello, Frank Brown. Hello, how are you? Good. So you're there in Summerford. You're one of a, a couple of residents who received this removal order. What's it all about? Yes, I did. On, uh, I think it was May the 5th. And I got a removal order to remove 115, 120 animals off my property, plus all my birds and chickens and turkeys and ducks and whatever else I got there. So anyway, they give me till the 5th of June to have it removed. If not, they were going to come and take my animals and remove my barn and sell my animals to pay for their expense. So anyway, we're not putting up with that stuff. So how long have you been uh, keeping animals on your property? I, I've had that property since 1992, and we've had gardens and animals there most ever since. And... That lamb was occupied previously by my great-grandfather, Joseph Jenkins, back in 1880s. And they raised animals and livestock and vegetables there for generations and generations. Now, I don't personally have a title to that land, but we got squatters' rights to it and everything else, I guess. But, uh, you know, for the town to hop in and boot, you know, your way of living out and, you know, and then a little pony out of town and... And then Elvis Boyd's ducks, and he got a migratory bird permit, and he's got he's got like twenty five to forty thousand dollars invested in this this bird sanctuary thing there, you know. And they're protected birds. You just can't boot that stuff out of town in thirty days. So you say you don't have title to the town? Is that perhaps what's behind this? No, that's not what's behind that at all. It's just that the the town town council members or the clerk and the whatever they just. They just don't like animals and stuff because they're picking on, they're picking on three of us. So you know the other two people got titles to where they're at. So you know why why pick on them if if it's over a land title? How big is the land uh, that you occupy? It's about three acres. So lots of room there. 
Lots of room there, yeah. And what do you keep? Well, I got a hundred and hundred and ten sheep, lambs. I got probably ten, fifteen goats and kids. I got a rescue donkey, and then I got probably twenty-five chickens, twenty ducks, fifteen turkeys, five guinea fowls. So you know that stuff you just can't move overnight. And you've appealed this, I understand. Oh yes, we get the appeal all gone in. So what are you hoping will come out of this? Well, we're just hoping that that the town smartens up and, you know, farming and, and agriculture has been a part of our town, you know, ever since the first settler came to Summerford, which was called Farmer's Arm, until 1906 that he changed it to Summerford. And and farming and, and fishing and all that stuff and agriculture was always a big part of our town and always will be if unless the town council goes stays crooked like the air. So this is a, a regulation I understand that's been in place for some time. Why do you suppose it's being enforced now? Has it is it based on complaints? Have you received any complaints or are you aware of any? There's no complaints in, in our community about the farm animals and stuff. Last year there was a little complaint, not towards my animals, but towards another another family, young family that started off with some pigs. But, you know, that got resolved. And, and the neighbors and, and the owners of them animals, you know, came to agreement after. And, and, you know, it was all cleared up. You know, it was just... It was just a learning lesson, I guess, for some of the residents, well, all the residents of Sonford, actually. But there's nobody against those animals in town. Nobody. Like... Like, the support we got is pretty much 100% of all town residents. Do you hope that this will be resolved? You'll be able to keep your animals? Well, I keep my animals regardless, but uh, hopefully it gets resolved so the animals will stay in town where they belong. So anyway, I pasture my animals every year from June till January before brings them back to town so it's only for a short period five six months mine's in town anyway because on where i pastures i don't have a, a facility for lambing out in, in the winter time which my my sheep all lambs at home and and from january till till well maybe february till june when i have my last lambs so you know i i'd be up in the barn every two hours doing chicks in the wintertime when they're lambing, so I can't do that when they're 30 minutes away. So uh, do you think that the, I mean, this is obviously getting a lot of attention. Are you hopeful that this will sort of open the eyes to a lot of municipalities to say, you know, we need to re-examine this? Yes, like we're, we're not doing this just for change for me and Julia and Elvis. We're doing this for change for all Newfoundland and Labrador. Like this is a part of our heritage. You know, this is what our forefathers and uncles and great-grandfathers and their friends went overseas and fought the war for, you know, for our freedom and our rights and everything else. Like if those old people, you know, that gave their lives for this stuff, you know, if they've seen this today, they probably come out of their graves. And that's Frank Brown in Summerford. We're going to go now to uh, the caller on line one. Hello, Glenda. Hello, Glenda. Hello, Glenda. You there? Yeah, I'm here. Oh, hi, Glenda. Uh, uh, I understand you're calling from Summerford? Uh, no, I'm actually from there, but I'm living in Grand Falls. Uh-huh. 
but I can't because when my grandparents was young, I mean, everybody, some of them was a farming community. Yeah. And I find it very ironic that they're trying to get everybody back to the old days, and now these guys are doing it, and they're being punished for it. Or it used to be summer, uh, uh, farmer's and arm. It was, and, and it's ironic that some of them years ago was called farmer's arm. A lot of the people from Twillingate settled there to farm. Yeah. Yeah, it was called Farmer's Arm. So, I mean, they can't, they just can't do that. They can't, but I mean, I know it's the council. Like, like Mr. Brown is right. It's the council. They, they, they basically think they own the town. But I think they're going to find out this time they're not getting their own way. Because people are not going to let that happen. They're not going to let them animals go. And I'll even be out there if there's protests or roadblock off or whatever. And a lot of people in Newfoundland will, not just Summerford. Do you think there's a movement uh, towards uh, people, you know, going sort of back to some basics that we used to rely on? Yes, we got to. We got no choice. I mean, I'm not the one there in the middle of Grand Falls, of course. But if I lived out around just the other place, like them little towns, like my own town, I mean, I'd be, I, oh, yeah, I'd be back at it. Yeah. I mean, I got a friend that got greenhouses, and she got chickens, and she got, you know, she sat around. But, I mean, it makes no sense. I mean, the town council has got to realize that everyone is looking at them now like, the apple don't fall far from the tree type thing. They know what I'm talking about. And they got to, I mean, they need to cooperate with the town instead of getting the town, you know, upward mad at them. Like, they need to, I mean, they're part of the town, too. It's their people. They need to smarten up. Glenda, I appreciate your call. Thank you. Thank you, my darling. Alrighty. Bye-bye. And any thoughts you have on that, you're welcome to give us a call. Uh, Coming up, we're going to hear what the Newfoundland Pony Society has to say about it all. This is News Talk on VOCM. Weekday mornings from 5.30 to 9. Jumpstart your day with Jerry Lynn Mackey and Ben Murphy. Newsmakers, traffic, weather, and more during your VOCM morning show. And we're back. Well, before the break, we heard from Frank Brown, who owns some animals in Summerford and is one of a number of people who just received uh, removal orders from the town council. The town council, by the way, is not speaking at this particular time. Uh, When I was talking to them yesterday, they indicated that, um, you know, as uh, is the case with a lot of things, uh, there are um, a number of factors involved in some of these decision-making processes, uh, but they were unable to talk any further on it because of the appeals that are underway. So uh, we hope to hear more from them in the next little while. But the Newfoundland Pony Society is voicing concern about the impact municipal bans on farm animals might have on the future of the Newfoundland pony, an endangered heritage animal. Well, I spoke with President Jack Harris. Well, Jack Harris, uh, these um, municipal bylaws that come into place from time to time or are in place and, and are, um, I guess, enforced from time to time, has come to the fore again, this time in Summerford. Is this a concern now for the Newfoundland Pony Society? Well, I think it's a, a general concern. Obviously, the, the case in Summerford uh, has its own uh, uh, particularities. But the general uh, thing is that uh, many municipalities may have rules and regulations that 
are, are on the books that they um, you know don't enforce or are not aware of even in some cases. But uh, we're concerned that uh, rules that can be used to uh, deter or prevent people from having uh, Newfoundland ponies, and uh, that's a concern to us because part of the problem for the pony has been that uh, rules and regulations made it very difficult for people to keep and look after their ponies, and that led to the, in part to the decrease in population to a very serious point uh, back in the early 90s. So we want to encourage municipalities to review their, their bylaws and, and try to make sure that they make room for uh, people who want to have a Newfoundland pony or a, a, a lamb as a pet for that matter uh, in, in circumstances where they're not a nuisance. So, you know, obviously there needs to be rules about uh, uh, how to uh, p- properly care for an animal and uh, things like that. But uh, I think the uh, if you can't have a Newfoundland pony in rural Newfoundland because there are towns with rules, then I think that's a very dis- that would be very disturbing for us trying to preserve and, and uh, protect the Newfoundland pony as an important heritage breed. Have there been any discussions with the Newfoundland Pony Society, with, um, I don't know, municipalities, Newfoundland and Labrador, or the Department of uh, Municipal and Provincial Affairs to this end to, to sort of express some of these concerns that this might have a detrimental effect on certain breeds or, or just backyard farming as a whole? Yeah, well, I think, you know, if you look at uh, farming and, and municipalities, there's you know, lots of farms in, in St. John's, for example, inside the municipal boundaries. There are dairy farms and uh, people keeping cattle and all sorts of things. So it's a question of having uh, a proper regime in place that allows the things that you want to allow. And I think uh, that's that's the point here. Uh, a few years ago, the, the point came up, and I did have some discussions with the uh, some people from the Federation of Municipalities, and there was talk of developing potentially a model bylaw uh, that could be uh, served uh, for municipalities to use when the issue came up in a particular case. Uh, I think we didn't get very far with that, but it may be time to revisit it and see if we can come up with something that could uh, suggest a, a model bylaw that would allow uh, municipalities to do their proper job of preventing nuisances and things like that and safety of, of the public, but also to allow uh, properly uh, housed and looked after Newfoundland ponies to be able to uh, continue to be an important part of our heritage. I've heard it said, I'm not sure how true it is, but I've heard it said that the city of St. John's is actually much more progressive when it comes to livestock, backyard farming, uh, those kinds of things than many other smaller municipalities. Well, I live very close to downtown St. John's and uh, I have neighbours who have chickens and uh, you know, that seems to be uh, not a problem for, for them or for, for the city. And I think, uh, you know, some thought is given to it. And, uh, you know, I realize that many municipalities don't necessarily have the staff or resources to uh, develop these uh, sorts of things without a lot of consultation. And sometimes it's expensive, I'm told, to, to change rules or municipal plans or uh, town plans that have been adopted uh, and that sort of thing. So perhaps there needs to be some uh, support for them in doing that. And maybe the, the model bylaw would be the way to go. Uh, and perhaps uh, uh, that's something that should be looked into further. 
I know the situation in Summerford involves a Shetland pony, and they're very, very common, and they're often kept as pets. But are you worried that uh, Newfoundland ponies, even today, are in jeopardy because of uh, the enforcement of some kinds of bylaws across the province? Well, I think if if if, I, if what I'm told about the Summerford rule is uh, is true, uh, that that their regulations prevent anything that's called livestock within the municipal boundaries, and the municipal boundaries of Summerford, like most municipalities, go well beyond a cluster of of houses that are that are close together. They continue out into the wooded areas and surrounding areas, and that's uh, you know the provinces considering in increasing them even more. Uh, so we, we want to uh, uh, make sure that, uh, uh, you know, uh, a Newfoundland pony, well, whether it's livestock or not, is a debatable matter, I think, uh, in terms of, of uh, what it actually means. But uh, if, if, you're, if you categorically refuse all livestock in terms of municipality, and you consider a Newfoundland pony or a Shetland pony as livestock, well, then that's not very uh, that's not very progressive, and it's not very much in keeping with, I think, what the majority of <clears throat> citizens would want <clears throat> should be would want uh, to have uh, in their municipality or in the province, for that matter. So has any official, I suppose, uh, complaint or um, concern been raised about this, either with uh, Summerford or the province? Well, we've uh, we've indicated to the province that we believe that uh, uh, municipal affairs should uh, help uh, with the situation and uh, and see if we can do something. What we haven't—that's just uh, this has only come up in the last couple of days. Jack Harris, I do appreciate your time. Thank you. Well, thank you very much, Linda, for your interest in uh, this important matter because it's uh, it affects uh, uh, what we've been trying to do and what we're mandated to do to protect the pony and protect this important heritage breed and, and uh, hopefully that it should be able to thrive in the province where, which gave it birth as a breed. Thanks so much. Thank you, Linda. President of the Newfoundland Pony Society, Jack Harris. Coming up, cracking down on organized crime in Newfoundland and Labrador. This is News Talk on VOCN. Every Saturday is perfect for a night at the cabin. The Cabin Party with Brian O'Connell. Saturday night starting at 7 p.m. on VOCM. And we're back. Well, one person is facing charges and the investigation continues after police say a number of silencers bound for an address in CBS were intercepted by officials in Toronto. Sergeant David Emberley of the RCMP Federal Serious Organized Crime Unit joins me now. Sergeant Emberley, hello. Hello. So what is the RCMP Federal Serious Organized Crime Unit? What do you do? We investigate uh, transnational drug trafficking, money laundering, and uh, organized crime uh, in Newfoundland uh, with connections across the country. And that involves drug trafficking and uh, uh, motorcycle gangs, a number of different things that we, we uh, investigate. Is it a busy unit in this province? Very much so, yes. I think that would surprise some people to hear that. No, we're very busy. So uh, you had this recent uh, case and it involved an, uh, an awful lot of uh, agencies. How did this uh, situation in CBS get started? So uh, between April 11th and the 20th of this year, uh, Canada Border Service Services Agency uh, investigators uh, located eight firearm suppressors 
in Toronto that were from uh, China and were destined for a residence in CBS. So this seizure led to a, a joint investigation between CBSA and the RCMP, Federal Serious and Organized Crime Unit in St. John's, uh, with the assistance of Canada Post inspectors and the Royal Newfoundland Constabulary. Um, so suppressors are sometimes are referred to as silencers. They're, they're essentially a device that connects to the end of a firearm that greatly reduces the sound of the gunshot. Uh, so as a result of this seizure, on May 3rd, a 39-year-old man was arrested in CBS uh, for offences under the Criminal Code and the Customs Act in relation to these suppressors. And uh, following uh, his arrest, a search warrant was executed at a residence in CBS that resulted in the seizure of uh, 25 firearms. So this investigation is ongoing and charges are pending under both the Criminal Code and the Customs Act. So silencers, is that something that um, are automatically red flagged? Well, they're a prohibited device. So, of course, they would be red flagged. Yes. Uh, is it something you see frequently in this province? Personally, I haven't, no. I, I haven't seen suppressors before. I'm not saying that they haven't been shipped in here before, but from my personal experience, it's the first time I've, I've been involved with them. And in a general sense, uh, what what is of interest there? Why why would these types of devices be used? Well, they're a prohibited device, and their only function is to greatly reduce the sound of a gunshot. So, um, you know, the only pe the only people who could lawfully be in possession of suppressors would be military and police. And they so that's they, a, a worry to the general public, I would imagine. Yes, absolutely. Right. So uh, where is this investigation now? Is it ongoing? It is ongoing, and charges are expected under both the Criminal Code and the Customs Act. And a number of weapons were seized as well? 25 firearms were seized, uh, yes, from residents in CBS. I'm looking at the picture now. I don't know what I'm looking at, but uh, there, are, it, there appears to be a wide variety of firearms here. There was, yeah. There was... Uh, uh, Rifles and shotguns and pistols. And some of them quite uh, intimidating looking, so to speak, uh, like a little more of a military type. Some are of a tactical style, yes. And do you see these uh, types of firearms um, uh, seizures often in Newfoundland and Labrador as well? Well, I, c I can tell you, Linda, from my personal experience, uh, I've been a drug investigator in the St. John's area since uh, 2009, so 14 years. And uh, when I started back in St. John's drug section, when we would execute drug warrants, uh, we would rarely seize guns. And when we did, they were usually hunting rifles or hunting shotguns. But in the last five or six years, uh, almost every time we uh, execute a search warrant uh, related to drug trafficking, we almost always now uh, seize firearms and, uh, you know, loaded firearms, uh, stolen handguns, assault rifles. It's it's become commonplace. Uh, police are seizing on a regular basis. Any idea what's contributing to that? Is it just sort of the escalation of the drug trade, or is there something else happening? Well, I, I can tell you from my personal experience that uh, when I started 14 years ago, uh, there wasn't nearly as much cocaine in the province as there is now. Uh, so back then, if we seized a kilogram of cocaine, that was a huge seizure. But nowadays, between 
the RCMP and our colleagues in the RMC. I mean, we've made multiple uh, large uh, seizures of multiple kilos on a regular basis over the last five or six years. And with those large amounts of cocaine comes large amounts of money, like hundreds of thousands, millions of dollars. And when you're dealing with that level of drugs and money, you're dealing with organized crime and you're, you're dealing with dangerous people. And uh, people use guns to to uh, intimidate, to control, to protect themselves, not only from, you know, from police, but from other people who might try and steal their drugs or money. So, uh, so the stakes are higher. They are, yeah. And, uh, you know, obviously there was a, quite a few agencies involved in this particular um, investigation. Are you seeing more of these types of complex investigations? Well, like I say, this is the first time in, from my personal experience that I've been involved in a seizure of, of suppressors. But I know that uh, our colleagues in the RNC uh, not too long ago had a uh, seizure of of guns that were made by uh, a 3D printer. So I guess times are changing when it comes to, to firearms. And how does that change what you do? Well, whenever we, you know, as as a drug investigator, as a drug investigator, whenever we, uh, you know, execute search warrants, for example, it's we now expect to find guns, so it, it's uh, there's a higher risk today than there was 14 years ago when I started in this business. Anything, uh, any further arrests um, expected? I, you, you mentioned that arrests are pending, but do you, effect, do you expect uh, further arrests and, and charges in, in connection with this particular investigation? No, char- charges are pending. So charges are pending. Um, the matter is still under investigation. That's, that's about all I can say right now. Charges are expected under the Criminal Code and the Customs Act. Sergeant David Emberly, RCMP Federal Serious Organized Crime Unit. I really appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you very much. So that's a bit eye-opening how much um, uh, drug investigation has uh, changed over the last uh, 14, 15 years in Newfoundland and Labrador. If you have any thoughts on that, you're certainly welcome to give us a call. Well, the Provincial Minister of Labrador and Indigenous Affairs, Lisa Dempster, attended the annual Northern Development Ministers Forum in Churchill, Manitoba this week. The forum, which discussed a wide variety of issues of relevance to the North, will take place in Labrador next year. Here's some of what... Minister Lisa Dempster discussed at a news conference held just a short time ago, uh, particularly as it relates to transportation in Labrador plagued with ice issues and disrupted for days on end. So uh, it's been wonderful to sit here with my federal colleague in particular from Canada, and we want to keep the conversation going on the value of what it means to this great country to uh, ensure a fixed link is built that uh, will be a nation-building project, and uh, we want to work with our uh, friends and colleagues in Quebec to see Route 138 finished. When we are able to give access, we can build an economy. We can have a thriving economy in the north, whether it's mineral, whether it's Indigenous tourism. In our budget 23, uh, we just allocated uh, several million dollars for uh, geoscience. Uh, We'll do some of that data work, and that uh, itself will make it more feasible for companies to come in. But uh, certainly access is absolutely a huge one. Thank you. Okay, up next, uh, Jennifer Laviolette uh, has uh, has a question. So, Jennifer, uh, have at her. 
Thank you so much. Uh, my first question is, uh, you're talking lots about offering jobs to First Nations people, which is excellent. Uh, but as we expand into the tourism up north, is there any concerns about labor shortages and finding enough people to fill these positions as, as this economy grows? Hi, Jennifer. Uh, it's Greg here. Yes, I mean, there's always concerns about labor shortages. I, I don't think there's any industry or uh, retail business in Canada that's, uh, that has enough labor at the present time. Uh, you know, our province is, is certainly continuing to work with the federal government on immigration things like that. I think access will improve the opportunities in the north for employees as well. Um, the other thing I know our government's focusing on, um, especially in the mining sector at this point, and we should be in tourism likely too, is, is training people in the north to work in the north. If the people are from the north, there's a much better chance they're going to stay here. So that's that's our strategy moving forward is to, uh, you know, to encourage more immigration to the province and, and also to uh, increase the training opportunities especially in the north. Perfect, thank you. I would, I would only oh. like to add to that one, one uh, quick fact is that part of the reason is that part of the reason for there being a lack of workers is that there's a lot of jobs that have been created uh, post pandemic. And in fact, across Canada, there's close to a million new jobs today than there were before the pandemic started. So. Uh, of course, more jobs, more workers are employed. And if there were more workers, there would even be more jobs created. So um, I know that uh, uh, that's a positive. That's a positive for Canada. And it's something, uh, something that uh, is going right. I'll just add to that uh, from a Newfoundland and Labrador perspective for the first time in 70 years, uh, our population is growing. Our school enrollment is growing and uh, it's creating a, a different problem because we're having to build more schools and open up classrooms and we're doing it very much uh, working in partnership with the government of Canada and uh, immigration has been a very important answer to many of the labor market shortages that we are feeling across all sectors, not just in Newfoundland and Labrador, but across this country. And that's uh, Labrador and Indigenous Affairs Minister for Newfoundland and Labrador, Lisa Dempster, attending the Northern Development Minister's Forum in Churchill, Manitoba, along with some of her provincial and federal counterparts. Well, I saw this story, Claudette, in the news uh, just a short while ago, and I, I think it's hard for people who uh, didn't live through it to really appreciate just how famous... Princess Diana was. Oh, yes. I, it really brought me back to that day, what happened just yesterday. I think it was, well, whenever, I know what you're talking yeah. about. Um, just that the family, the they had to go through the same thing. They were chased by paparazzi, Harry and uh, Meghan. Yeah, so I was uh, about to get into that, but that's exactly how uh, Princess Diana lost her life. She and Dodi Fayed and their uh, driver uh, all died. They had one survivor in that crash, but it was absolutely catastrophic. And they were being chased by paparazzi on these little, you know, these little mopeds, <laughs> mopeds or, and yeah. other things. Uh, some of them in cars, some of them in mopeds and the like. And just completely 
completely and utterly harassed night and day. I mean, you've seen all of those pictures of Princess Diana. In fact, you can go back to um, Marilyn Monroe and some of the pictures of her being swamped and swarmed and obviously feeling very vulnerable and exposed uh, at that time. Um, these are people trying to do ordinary things, have supper, <laughs> you know, go home, uh, you know, and despite their fame and fortune and uh, all of the privileges that they see in life, they shouldn't be harassed. Nobody should be harassed to that kind of level. And now we see this story, and I mean, that resonated so strongly at that time among people who lived during that time. And I can just remember the feeling that the, that, 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 I don't know, a cloud that had gone over absolutely everything around after the Princess world. Yeah. Diana died. It was really a sobering time uh, for people to really examine, you know, what is fame? Why, why do we become so fascinated with certain people and, and, you know, the lengths to which some people will go to make money to sell those magazines? And now we've got social media and all the rest of it. Um, well, it's quite shocking now to see that her very son and his wife harassed to the same extent. New York police confirming that Prince Harry and his wife Meghan were pursued by photographers after Meghan accepted an award from the Ms. Foundation. A police source says officers eventually helped the Duke and Duchess of Sussex switch to a taxi. Police say there were no reported collisions, summonses, injuries or arrests. However, Harry and Meghan say the pursuit lasted for two hours two hours and resulted in multiple near collisions describing the incident as near catastrophic well that had to be res resonate so strongly with him he just a small boy when his mother oh, died i'm sure he would have gotten a big flashback when that happened and her mother was involved her mother was terrified she's 66 years old and uh, she is having a hard time dealing with this of now course, of course yeah. of course that's not the life that she uh, bought into, for, yeah. you know what I mean? And I mean, Megan is used to fame and fortune. Uh, she is a, uh, you know, an actress of her own stature. Yep. Uh, but this takes it to a whole other level. Well, it's very interesting to see that indeed. Well, we'll be back tomorrow. I do hope you're able to join us then. Thanks for listening, everyone. Have a great day.